from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I saw that title, it, it felt like um, the answer key to the minor threat records that I'd heard. And that really excited me that someone could, could break down all that uh, sound and fury and show that it signified something. Uh, casting a wary eye at the status quo um, and being skeptical about cooperating in the service of the status quo is, you know, it's a sensibility of punk, but it's also the sensibility of an academic, right? And I've found that, you know, living substance free and being at least somewhat conscientious about uh, my relationships, my romantic relationships, has um, been conducive to those aims. I'm Sarah Fenske. Jira Asim's new book is ostensibly a letter to his younger brother, a survival guide for being gifted and black in a society that isn't ready for the combination. But it's also much more than that. It's a coming-of-age story, and it's the true story of how Jira Asim found himself in the punk movement, how he went from feeling alone to finding his place in life and in music. And that is Space Jam. It's a track from Jira Asim's band Baby Got Back Talk. Jira Asim's book is called Boys in the Void, a mixtape to my brother. And he joins us today to talk about it. Jira Asim, welcome. Hey, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. So you start your book with this ominous sentence. Quote, there's a sullen and brooding six foot two, 240 pound presence in my parents' house and his shadow looms large over the otherwise placid nest. And you're describing there your brother, Giassi. He's the fifth of five kids in your family. Tell us about him. Giassi is uh, the kind of person who I think when he walks through the world, um, he's constantly preceded by a perceived reputation. Um, and he's not, you know, I call him an artist in reticence with a T hmm. in the book. He's not someone who wears his personality on his sleeve necessarily. So I felt very aware that this kind of disparity between what the world would expect of him and uh, what's actually going on in his interior world uh, would make for a really fertile literary subject. So you suggest here that, that what's going on in this interior world is akin to, to part of what you suffered as a teenager. And, and what was that? Well, the way I describe it in the book um, is this, you know, I, I call it the indeterminate future blues, hmm. right? This sense that um, that disparity that I just alluded to is not something you're going to be able to navigate, that there's not going to be a comfortable place in this society for the kind of person you are. And the sense of, of dread that at some point that's going to come to a head, um, particularly when you cross the threshold from adolescence to adulthood. 
So you spent your first 10 years in St. Louis, and so some of this this childhood that you're writing about here in this book, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of St. Louis parts in this. Your parents are St. Louis natives, and I feel like a lot of our listeners uh, probably remember your father. That's Jabari Asim. He was the books editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch before he went on to the Washington Post. Your mom is a playwright, also an actor. What was it like growing up in their home? It sounds like such a such a unique place. It definitely was. Um, I think one of the things I try to capture in the book is this sense that having this countercultural upbringing sort of made it so that merely daring to internalize and abide by the values that were impressed upon me in that household would read to the world um, as a rebellion. And so when you're already in that point, if your ground zero is this really bohemian, um, arts-focused uh, and left-leaning uh, starting point, then punk and, and straight edge, which I also write about in the book, don't feel um, too far off base from where you began. And, you know, growing up and uh, getting to see things like the New Voices, New Worlds uh, reading series and attending New City School, uh, I think all those things kind of gave me a foundation where punk and straight edge were actually pretty intuitive things to gravitate to. And so the seminal moment for you comes at a bookstore. This is after your family has moved to Maryland. You're in Silver Spring, Maryland. You discovered a book there called The Philosophy of Punk. And it sounds like this book almost grabbed you by your lapels. It was speaking to you urgently from the moment you saw it. Um, You'd sort of been primed for this moment. Well, I I think I had already sort of realized that whatever your your day-to-day life might be like, no matter how mundane, books were always this portal to something elusive and enchanted, something um, that might allow you to transcend that mundanity. And I didn't know too much about punk. I'd only ever heard of one real punk band, I guess, Minor Threat. Uh, And I didn't understand that it could be explained as a philosophy. So once I saw that title, it it felt like um, the answer key to the minor threat records that I'd heard. And that really excited me that someone could could break down all that uh, sound and fury and show that it signified something. And so if you had to break this down for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with punk, what would you say is the core philosophy of punk? I would sum it up as a kind of principled skepticism. Uh, You can argue that Punk is even more of an aesthetic than it is a philosophy, right? Some people are just interested in leather and big boots and spikes and (laughs) spiky hair. Uh, But I think a lot of the people who stick with it the longest are folks who have some humanitarian view of the world and a sort of um, proudly nonconformist ethic and recognize that that living with that nonconformist ethic is usually in the service of that humanitarian view of the world. Hmm. That protecting the world and caring about people um, usually involves cutting against the grain sometimes. And being anti-authority in some ways. Absolutely, that too. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like asking people to um, critically reflect on why a given person or a given idea has authority rather than just... Um, looking at someone's elevated position as a justification for whatever it is they have to say or whatever it is they're doing. Mm. 
So this immediately struck you, um, but there's sort of one key thing here that you spend a lot of time um, thinking about and, and writing about in this book. And this kind of comes down to one sentence I'm going to quote from your book. At the point that you found the philosophy of punk, quote, I had never personally encountered so much as a single non-white punk. Is punk still largely a white movement? I would say it was always a more diverse movement than people are aware of, hmm. but that it's um, experiencing a particular boom right now. Um, a lot of the, the gates, I think, that kind of uh, made people feel like they had to hew to this cultural orthodoxy uh, have have swung wide open, right? There's so many places like Afropunk and Punk Black um, that now promote this idea that um, we're not interlopers, right? That non-white punks are people who have always contributed to the tradition and in, in some ways are some of the most vocal and visible contributors in the current iteration of the movement. And people like you and your band, are, is it fair to say you're part of what's changing that? I would say so, uh, humbly. We, <laughs> we're certainly not the only ones. Um, we're definitely part of a really vibrant community of POC and otherwise, you know, um, marginalized artists who are trying to to form a kind of vanguard uh, in the punk movement and, you know, stump for its enduring relevance and resonance today. We're talking today to Jira Asim. His new book is Boys in the Void, a mixtape to my brother. Uh, it's advice to his brother. It's an explanation of, of how Jira found his way. It also really talks a lot about what it means to be punk and particularly what it means to be black and punk. And so for you, when you first found this back in Silver Spring, Maryland, you weren't brought in by members of this community. You were you almost brought in by a book that appealed to what was already inside of you. Then was it hard to find your people? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think, um, bizarrely, a thing that has helped me in terms of finding people is from a very young age, I was really into this romantic notion of posting want ads and auditioning bandmates and then kind of uh, discovering a, a simpatico musical sensibility that also produced a friendship. And so in all the different cities I've lived in, uh, I've at some point had an experience where I had an ongoing ad on Craigslist and was having people over to jam and you know asking them who their favorite bands were. And eventually uh, I, I ended up with uh, the four people I'm in a band with now. And I like to describe them as kind of like my dream middle school cafeteria table, mm. right? Like that, that group of friends that you know a lot of people um, long for but can't find when they're in their early teens. And it's sort of more gratifying to be in touch with those people and to be making music with them as an adult. Hmm. So you found your way and you still, not only do you still have this punk band, you still participate in straight edge culture. And I feel like maybe this is a stereotype, but the idea is that straight edge is something that people grow out of. If you can explain to our listeners what straight edge means, and, and then I'm curious why you haven't grown, grown out of it. Straight edge is began in the 1980s uh, and it was connected to the Washington DC hardcore scene, hardcore being kind of a subgenre of punk. And the the planks of it were, very broadly speaking, no alcohol, no drugs, uh, and no promiscuous sex. It was kind of a refutation of what we might look at as 70s rock star libertinism. Hmm. Uh, and I gravitated to the movement when, around the same time I read The Philosophy of Punk when I was about 14. 
Um, and I have had some moments where I've become very ambivalent about it uh, and, you know, briefly renounced straight edge and, and then sort of found my way back. But I think the reason I've stuck with it is, uh, interestingly, the same thing that, that sold me in the first place. Um, I mentioned that humanitarian ideal that uh, is kind of like a backbone in the history of punk. Mm -hmm. uh, the way Straight Edge was originally explained to me was that if you were invested in the idea of a more peaceful, more prosperous collective future for the world, then one central personal component of that should be investing in your own longevity, right? Doing things to make sure you're around to help usher that future forward. And that while you're doing so, you have as lucid an engagement with reality as you can possibly have. And I've found that you know, living substance free and being at least somewhat conscientious about uh, my relationships, my romantic relationships, has um, been conducive to those aims. Hmm. So you haven't just found your people, your dream middle school table that we all long for. You've also found some real professional success. And as you detail in the book, this is despite not taking maybe the straightest path towards that. Um, you became a college professor and, and you now have this job at Ithaca College as an assistant professor of nonfiction writing. I understand you're coming back to St. Louis to take a job at Wash U, which is huge. Um, how were you able to, to find this when initially it looked like you weren't on the path that was headed towards that? It's it surprises even me when you put it in those terms. So I'm with you. I, I kind of ask myself the same thing. It seems like the key, really, uh, and I try to keep this in mind as an educator myself, is that sometimes that uh, I like to call it rampunctiousness, right? This sense of skepticism about received wisdom um, and unwillingness to be cowed by authority. Sometimes that rampunctiousness just needs to be channeled in a productive way. Uh, casting a wary eye at the status quo um, and being skeptical about cooperating uh, with anything in the service of the status quo is, you know, it's a sensibility of punk, but it's also the sensibility of an academic, right? And so eventually I found ways uh, to channel that energy um, in a fashion that was more productive and less destructive. Hmm. And so for your little brother, um, is this something where you feel like he's on his way? Oh, for sure. I mean, more so even than I was at the time. Hmm. Um, there's there's a lot of continuities between us as I write in the book, but he's a kid with a lot of promise and, and has his head on at least at least a few degrees straighter than I did. <laughs> so you're not worried about him. You're, you're giving him this advice, but you, you have a feeling he's going to be just fine. I do. Uh, and I tell them all the time, you know, I see us as a team. So we're going to we're going to make sure it's fun together. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, you are coming back to St. Louis. Um, and this is where you spent the first 10 years of your life before your family moved to several different places. Does this feel in some ways like a return to the ancestral homeland? It does. It's not something that I would have anticipated. And it came together in a bit of a providential way. But I'm someone who has appreciated that homelands have a kind of natural and mysterious gravity. And I'm actually excited to be uh, swept up in that and to, to land in a familiar and welcoming place. So is there much of a punk scene here that's, that's waiting for you? I don't personally know. I would assume that there are punks everywhere. Off the top of my head, I'm not too familiar with very many uh, St. Louis punk bands, although... I don't know if, if people out there are familiar with so many dynamos. I think they had a moment mm -hmm. in the late aughts. 
Um, but I'm excited to explore and kind of send out the smoke signals that punks use to announce themselves and, and connect with some like-minded folks. So you're going to find your people all over again. Absolutely. And Baby Got Back Talk uh, hopes to kind of develop a sort of dual citizenship, right? We're a part of a New York City DIY scene, and we're, we're looking forward to making inroads in the St. Louis scene and, and hopefully forging a connection, a lasting one, between those scenes. So one last question here, just in our final few moments. Um, you've said that Left Bank Books was such a touchstone for you when, when you were a kid here. Is there anywhere else that you're just really excited to revisit um, as, as you return to St. Louis? Definitely the City Museum. Ah, you chose a good one there. <laughs> really looking forward to that. That's great. Well, it sounds like you already know your starting points here. You're going to find your people. Uh, Jira Asim, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. And Jira's book is Boys in the Void, a mixtape to my brother. You can get that at Left Bank Books or, or any number of bookstores around the area. And I want to go out of the show with another song from Jira's band. That's Baby Got Back Talk. This is called When They Go Low, We Go Six Feet Under. Monday on St. Louis on the Air, we'll learn about Kirkwood's new pilot program to make parking easier. We'll also learn about everything that went down in that final frenzied final week of the legislative session. We'll also talk to Amarin, Missouri, about maintaining the grid even as they convert to clean energy. More reporting from the St. Louis on the Air team is available at stlpr.org. And look for the St. Louis on the Air podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That includes Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts on the App Store. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hemphill, Laura Hamden, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer. The audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Sarah Fenske. It's not because I keep St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.